We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. We're taking a break in the study of Luke, and we're going to kind of start to, well, not this week, but the next couple of weeks, we're going to start to dive into our Advent series. But today we're going to do a, a kind of a solo topic, Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. So please stand as we do every week to give honor to God's Word. We're in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, and he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word for God's people. Stay with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we pray now with a familiar passage such as this that you would would give us wisdom, you would give us understanding, that we would be able to apply these principles, uh, these commands to our lives so that we would, as a body, grow up to maturity in love. That the world will look at the crossing church, the world will look at the individuals in this room and be like, there is something different about them, what is it? And we'd have the uh, ability, the honor, and the privilege to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. In your name we pray, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. All right. One of the things that we should all do, probably on a yearly basis, is go to the doctor and get a get an exam, get a physical exam. 
I mean, it's one of the first things that happens when every one of us has come out of the womb. I, I remember as a, as a first-time father, we have five kids, and, and um, I'm sitting in there. Taylor's born, and they take her over right to the little, you know, I don't know, cubicle or whatever the heck that thing is, little egg warmer, right? I don't know, whatever that thing is. And all of a sudden, they start poking and prodding her and, like, moving her arms, like, in all different ways. And I was starting to freak out because I'm like, whoa, whoa, like, like she's, she's a newborn. Be gentle with her. And I think I even went like, whoa, you know, because I was like, what is going on? And then I said, like, it's all right. They're like Gumby, you know. You can do all kinds of things. And she kind of raised her leg and twisted it. And I was just like, ah, whoa. But so from the very first that we, 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 get, we get examined, we get a physical exam, and then throughout our lives, um, we should regularly see a doctor to see if our bodies are healthy. Um, and I'm thinking about this. I just turned 52, so I got to go get that checkup, which I'm a little nervous about because uh, as I wrote this, I'm like, man, I haven't seen a doctor since like 1995, you know? I'm like, I need, to, I need to take my own advice. I mean, there's one time that, uh, I'll tell you the story later, but I ran myself over with my own truck. And uh, I didn't go see the doctor, but like I had internal bleeding and bruising all over. I couldn't move. And Ray's like, you need to go see the doctor. I'm like, no, I'm good. You know, anyhow, we should go see the doctor regularly. And this morning in Ephesians 4, it, it, Paul gives us a spiritual exam. He calls us to have a spiritual checkup as the church. Now, what does a healthy church look like? What does it look like to, to, what are the markers of a healthy church? How are we to walk? How are we to act? How are we to talk? How are we to interact with one another? So that's what we're getting today, a spiritual checkup. Now we know the church is made up of individuals. It's made up of people. It's made up of you and me. And a, and a marker of a healthy church is that we individually are spiritually healthy. That we are spiritually healthy. And so I want you today to focus on your health, your spiritual health. This is an exam for you. This is an exam for me. It's, it's not for you to think about your spouse. It's not for you to think about your children. It's for you to think about you, not to your friend next to you, but to think about you doing a spiritual exam on your own heart. And not only do we do it individually, but we also know that that we're just not a, a body part that's separate or by ourselves. We're not like the thing from the Adams family. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know who the thing was? The thing was just that hand that wasn't attached to anything. It could run around and do anything. There's no such thing as thing Christians, right? We are attached to a greater whole. We are attached to the body of Christ. And so a, a, a spiritual exam and that question might be, as we're going to go through, is like, how, are, how is that with you? Are you attached to the body of Christ? Are you involved with a local church? Because that is part of your spiritual health. And this morning, I hope you're ready because you might get poked and prodded a little bit. We might tweak your arms and legs a little bit, or Paul might. So, so let's dive in. First, we see a healthy church is marked by unity. A healthy church is marked by unity, Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. Now, just real quick, since we haven't been, we've been in Luke, we're, we're not in Ephesians. Let me just give you a general context of the book. So kind of lands us right where we need to be so we can get Paul's heart. And in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul typically writes like this. He first writes primarily the indicatives, the, the things that are true about God, the, the things that, that God does in us. 
It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God who's active in our lives, such as Ephesians 1, 4, God the Father chooses or elects to save us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 5 through 7, God the Son, Jesus, He's the one that adopts us and He redeems us and He forgives us by His death and the shedding of blood on the cross. Ephesians 1, 13, we, then we see God the Holy Spirit. He's the one that comes and He seals us and he, He's our guarantor of our inheritance. So we see in chapters 1 through 3, it's God working in us. He's the one that is active. We are the ones receiving this great grace. And then Ephesians 4 through 6, it turns from indicatives to imperatives or commands. Now, since this is true about you in Christ, in the gospel, therefore, this is what you do. This is how you live. This is how you walk. These are the, the commandments that you obey. And that's where we're at today. Now, this is crucial when we get to passages that, that give commands and give you kind of a, a list of things to do a spiritual inventory check, like check your humility, check your gentleness, check your patience. We always, listen, we always first need to see these commands through the lens of the gospel. Because our identity isn't in what we do, our identity is rooted in what Christ has already done for us. And if we flip that backwards, we flip that on our head, we could have a miserable Christian experience. But when we begin with the gospel, when we begin with our identity in Christ, it frees us up to obey his commands. A great way to think about it, that we say this over and over again, is that God loves you, therefore we obey, rather than if you obey, then God will love you. It's a massive difference. And if you want freedom, if you want joy, you live in the indicatives, the indicatives inform the imperatives. Amen? All right, so let's dive in. Because in Ephesians 4, 1 through 7, Paul says this. Those who have been saved, redeemed, and sealed in chapters 1 through 3, we, we have a spiritual unity now among ourselves in our calling, in our conduct, and in our confession. That's what he's about to unpack here in Ephesians 1 through 7. First in our calling, look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner, Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians literally in prison, so he's literally a prisoner, but he's also spiritually a prisoner for the Lord. He says, I urge you, I implore you to walk, there's the imperative, there's the command, we are to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, called past tense, the indicative, you've already been called, so therefore you're called to now walk what has happened to you. So Paul says our calling from Christ should match our conduct in following Christ. Get that? Our calling in Christ, Christ has called us, and since he has called us, we shall now walk, or our conduct should show that we've been called by Christ. We should see this. Now, I love those two words, manner worthy. If I was you, I'd circle them, underline them, highlight them. This word worthy, in the context, it means this, in a manner corresponding to. So we are to walk in a manner corresponding to, well, corresponding to what? To our calling, to what Christ has called us to. So therefore, our conduct should match up to our calling. It has the idea of weight and scale back then, in measurement. You know, that, that scale that has, you know, a single pole, two lines, and you've got two kind of pots, and you kind of, you know, put a weight on this end, and it kind of goes up and down. This is what Paul has in mind. And what he's saying is, your calling and your conduct should be kind of balancing each other out. 
This is how John says it in 1 John 2, 4. First in the negative. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So I think if someone says like, I know Jesus, I'm Jesus. Then we look at your actions and it's like this. Your actions don't line up with what you're confessing about Christ. You don't look like Christ. You're not following Christ and his commands. And so the scale is off. But then he goes on to say this. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know we are in him. How do we know if we're in him? How do we know if we're if we're truly called by him? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way corresponding to in which he was called. And so you see that the calling and the conduct matches up. You've been called by Christ, and therefore you're you're following Christ. You're obeying Christ. Now, we don't do it perfectly, so sometimes it's going like this, right? But part of the, the, the conduct is when we see our rebellion, when we see our sin, when we do disobey, we, we confess our sin. We repent. We look to Jesus and what he has done for us. And the scales get back. So there's a correspondence between our call and our conduct. In other words, not only do we talk the talk, but we what? We walk the walk. And when people look at you, they can say like, oh yeah, there's something different about you, Aaron. You're following Jesus, therefore you must be called by him. So, so what does it look like? What does this calling produce? What, what should our conduct look like? Well, Paul answers that in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Our conduct should look like humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but this, this is a good list. You've been called by Christ. These are the attributes. These are the characteristics which should describe you. Again, not perfectly, but trajectory, this is what your life should look like. First, look at the first vital sign, the first vital check, humility. Now, why does this always seem like it's on the list in number one? Is anyone with me? And this is the tough thing about the pastor. I get to tell you how to be humble. How's that sound, right? Has anyone else written a book of humility in here that can come up and share what it means to be humble? Anybody? No, it's like, it's like a tough, it's like, a, who wants to tell someone about humility, right? Because in essence, you're like, prideful. But, so let me, let me, let me point us to Christ as, as quickly as possible. The best definition that I have heard, and you know, we go to back over and over again here at the crossing is, humility is not what? It's not thinking less of yourself. You don't say, oh, woe is me, oh, I suck. That's not what, he, that's not what humility is, that's false humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that's right. Humility has also been said to be the first, the second, and the third essential Christian conduct. Why? Because it most images, it best images Christ in our lives. Christ is the ultimate example of humility. We know this. That, 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 that Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the Son of Man, the one that is going to come and rule all over every tribe, every nation, every country. That son of man, that king of kings, that Lord of lords stepped out of heaven and became man. Why? He did that for your sake and my sake. He was thinking of you. Jesus thought of others, you and me, more important than himself. 
And so that's what humility is. We, we know this. We, we've been around the cross and you understand this. So there's, a, there's a new thing that, that, uh, that kind of I read this week that really piqued my interest in this. And we're talking about unity and the thing that unifies a church is, is humility. So then the thing that is the most destructive to unity, disunity, is what? Is pride, right? Is pride. That's the opposite of humility, is pride. Well, this is what the quote I read, and I thought, man, this is really, really good. The devil uses the pride of people to sow and cause disunity, to cause havoc in the church with other relationships. It's one of the best ways. So one of the best ways for us to stand firm against the devil is this, is through humility. Here's the quote. The most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is humility. Why? Because he does not know it at all or how to employ it. Neither does he know how to defend it himself from it. In other words, humility paralyzes the devil because he has no category for humility because everything that's built up in him is pride. So humility is a great way to stand firm against the devil. Humility is, outside of love, the greatest effective way that we can keep unity at the center. So humility is one. Second thing, second vital we, we check is gentleness or meekness. Now meekness does not mean weakness. I don't know where that comes from, but it comes from people think of meekness or gentleness. When they think meekness, they think weakness. Why? Because it rhymes. That's about the only reason why. Because they're not even in the same ballpark. This idea of gentleness or meekness, you guys know this, it means to, it's to keep power or strength under control. It's the ability to control strength, the ability to control power. You think like self-control, in particular for men. This is in particular for men, uh, because we've been, we've been given this strength and this power uh, to exercise physically, spiritually, emotionally. And when we look at men in the Bible who are meek, again, not weak, we think immediately of Jesus and Moses. Both of those men were called meek men, gentle men. Uh, they, they, they had a tenacity to them, but they also had a tenderness to them. And they knew how to control it. They knew when to employ one and not the other. You think of Jesus when the, the Jews were using the temple as a, a grounds to sell and make money and, uh, uh, off the people. A person would come up with a sacrifice and be like, oh, that dove is not good enough. You have to buy one of our doves. They were extorting their own people. And so when Jesus saw this, that he turned the temple into this this marketplace, he made a whip, he cracked it, and he cleared it. He cleared everyone out of the temple. And it said he stood there. He kept it. He knew how to, to control, and at that point he had to use his power to clear the temple. But then you think about him with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where he met this woman at the well, and she was in sin. And how, how did he deal with her? With a tenderness. The compassion with an empathy. He, he entered into her suffering. And so this is what it means to be meek. When I was a, well, when my boys were five, six, and seven years old, I would, I would get on the floor and do like, you know, 
uh, what we called it, you know, all-star wrestling back in my day. Now it's be like MMA, like an all-out brawl. And I just let them all just come and like attack me at once. And I would let them jump on my neck and they're hanging all over my body. And I'd be like, oh, and I'd fall down, let them pin me, right? I tempered my strength. But now, now that they're 21, 24, and 26, I'm not tempering my strength. I got to go all out if we get in an all-out wrestling match, right? Now I might not win, but I guarantee you I'm going to get my licks in, right? But again, it's strength under control. Here again, amen. In Titus chapter 2, when it gives the attributes of men and women, again, being able to control your strength. It says this, older men, it says be self-controlled, then it gives five other characteristics. Younger men, it only gives one characteristic. You know what that is? Be self-controlled. Control your strength. Control your attitude. Control your emotions. So that's the second vital thing, is that we are to be gentle, to be meek. The third vital sign check out is patience. Here's one we none of us need to worry about, so we can just move on from this one, right? Move on. Patience. What is patience? It's the ability to wait without getting frustrated. Uh, there's another word. It's like a good old-fashioned word. It's forbearance. It's forbearing with one another. It's the ability to wait and be long-suffering with one another without getting frustrated. Now, notice in here, Paul's not talking about general patience. He's not talking about, hey, just be patient when you put your name on a you know, wait list at a restaurant. That's the kind of patience. Or you're waiting for the next whatever Netflix show to come out. You've got to wait and be patient. He's not talking about that. Notice the context in which and who we are to be patient with. It's patience with those in the church. It's, it's patience with those who you're sitting next to right now. He says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We might say it this way. Put up with one another in love. Amen? That sounds more like the Christian life, doesn't it? Hey, we just got to, sometimes we just got to put up with one another in love. See, this idea of bearing one another in patience doesn't necessarily mean about sin, when people are sinning against you, but it has this connotation that we are to be patient, we are to bear with one another in our differences, with our different personalities that might clash. We are to bear with one another in our differences in perspective. To bear with another differences in our viewpoints. This is where we're called to be patient. Isn't that hard? Sometimes it's harder to be patient with someone who's not sinning against us that just is different than us, right? I've been, I've been in ministry for 25 plus years. True or false? Let me ask you this question. You can answer it in your head. True or false? We as Christians tend to be more patient more bearing, more long-suffering with those outside the church than those who are inside the church. And why? Because we're like, oh, those outside the church really need the love of Jesus. Right? That's our thinking. As if those inside the church don't need just as much love. Right? We all do. We all need to be long-suffering with one another. 1 Corinthians 13 puts it this way. Love bears all things. Believes all things. There's a funny poem that I read this week regarding this. It says this. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. 
But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story, right? So let's show the world our unity as Christ's disciples by our patient love for one another. Amen? Paul goes in on verse 3, he says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I want you to circle that word maintain. That's the key, key word in, in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice something. We don't create unity. It's not our job. We, we don't create unity. Unity has already been created in us by Christ Jesus. He is the one that sets the tone in unity. He's the one that establishes unity. His life, death, and resurrection brings every tribe, every tongue, every nation together through his shed blood and those who are in relationship with him. He is the foundation of unity. So we need to maintain it. We need to maintain it. Well, how do we do this? Well, first, I think we fight against and repent of the opposite of the three things that we just looked at. First, we walk in humility and repent of our pride. That's going to keep the unity. We, we, we walk in gentleness. We walk in meekness. And we repent of harshness in our relationships. We walk with patience. We extend forbearance with one another rather than impatience. So those are the the, the things that we do, the conduct that, that goes to our calling. That's how we fight disunity. That's how we maintain unity among us. But we also do something else. Ephesians 4 says, we also believe something. We're unified by our calling, we're unified by our conduct, but we're also unified by our confession. Our confession. The confession that we believe in. We're, we're, we maintain our unity by looking to Christ because he's the giver of unity. And the giver of unity is through Christ's doctrine, his theology of himself. That's what unites us. Ephesians 4.4. 4. Then there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One love, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one God of Father over all, who was over all and through all and in all. It's our confession that maintains unity. Our confession in the triune God and in what he has set in the plan of redemption. That's what keeps us together. Not our thoughts. Not like, well, I think this is what it means. No, what he says it means. I love what John Stott says. John Stott says this. John Stott talks about the Trinity as the basis for the church in Unity and sums it up like this, because if you look at Ephesians four, we see the Holy Spirit in verse four. There is one spirit. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in verse five. There is one Lord and we see God, the father in verse six. There is one God and father overall. And stop points this out. There can only be one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope and baptism and only one Christian body because there is only one God, father, son and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Torque question. Yes. Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God secured from destruction? Yes. Then there is only, then 
so is the unity of the church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. The reason why there's unity is because there's one Lord, one faith, one hope. So these are the vital signs that we need to take an inventory check on. And we need to check our, our humility, our meekness, our patience, as well as our confession. Ask yourself this, how, how's the checkup going so far as you look at those? As you look at those vital signs in your life? Are you feeling healthy? Do you, or do you see some areas like, ooh, I need, to, I need to work on that. I need to work on that. I need to focus on that part of my health. Let me just encourage you in general this morning. I think you and the crossing are doing a pretty good job. I think you guys are pretty healthy. I think we are healthy. Now, we haven't arrived, but we still got some work to do, right? We still got to watch our diet. We still got to, you know, we still got to exercise. But I think we're doing a good job. And this is what I think. We're, again, we're, we're at a, a, a moment, I think a, a big moment in the crossing's history, a, a turning point, if you will. A milestone here at the crossing. The Lord is doing something here. We finally feel like, you know, we're out of that COVID funk and we're back on building momentum. And I think just, just us as a church surviving COVID tells you how healthy we were even before COVID by God's grace. Because a lot of churches closed down during that time. A lot of them splintered and fractured and broke up into multiple pieces. Some don't exist, but the, the crossing by God's grace stood strong because we were unified in the one Lord. The one faith, the one hope. But I think the way we're moving, there's an enemy out there that wants to try and sneak in here. And he wants to try to promote disunity. He's going to try and, 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 and have some fractions happen between uh, individuals. He wants to frustrate our church. And so it's going to take everyone in here having health, daily, even yearly health checkups. How we how are we doing in our walk with unity, in our calling, in our conduct, and in our confession? That takes us to the second point. A healthy church is marked by variety. Or we might say a healthy church is marked by diversity. Look at Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led of hosts of the captives. And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower region, the earth? Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that sometimes when the Apostle Paul teaches, it's hard to understand, right? This might be one of those sections. Anyone up else want to come up here and explain this section? This is a difficult section at face value, but once you start to study it, you see that, oh, it makes total sense. What Paul is identifying here is he's, he's lifting up Jesus as the incarnate king and the ascended king. If you look at verse 9 and 10, we see that Jesus descended. What does that mean? Into the lower regions of the earth. It means that Jesus, as God, took on human flesh. He was in heaven, but we're about to celebrate. He became incarnate. He became man. He became a baby. He went from heaven down to earth. That's what it talks about descending. And not only did he descend as a child, but then he grew up. He lived the perfect life in your place and my place. And then he died on the cross. And then he was buried in a tomb. 
That's what it means by Jesus descending. Jesus became incarnate. He became human. He became man. He became our Savior. And then, after 40 days after the death and resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus, verse 8 and 9 said that he ascended far above the heavens, proving to be the conquering king of Daniel chapter 7 and Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 uh, gives us the, the event of his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And this is where Jesus is right now. He is the ascended king sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over you and over this world and all the events in this world. So now he's the, uh, the incarnate king. He's also the ascended king, but he's also this. Verse 7 tells us he's a gracious king. He's a gracious king. He gives out great gifts to his people. Verse 8, 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is not talking about salvation. We're already saved. This is, this is Christ giving us gifts according to his desire. Verse 8 says, therefore, when he ascended, when he rose as the victorious king on high, he led the host of captives. Who are the host of captives? Those are the Old Testament saints that were probably in Abraham's bosom. Luke chapter 16, we'll go over that in the spring. But he led them out and then he gave gifts to all men. You see, Jesus, not only the incarnate king and the ascended king, he's a gracious king. He loves to give good gifts to you and to me. We don't have to beg for gifts from Jesus. He's just a giver. He's generous. That's who he is. There's a joy that overflows for him to give you and me gifts. And he gives us all kinds of gifts. First, he gives us the gift of salvation. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of his word. He gives us the gift of you and me. Like my wife is the greatest gift outside of Christ to me. He gives us children. He gives us friendships. He gives us a church. Jesus is constantly giving to you and me. He's generous. We don't have to beg for him. He, he gives with liberty. This is also a healthy marker in our walk as followers of Jesus that we're generous. We're givers. We don't wait for someone to ask for us. We, we see a need and we meet a need. Whether it's our time, our, our, our gifts, our talent, or our treasure. It should be built bubbling up in us to give. But here and specifically, Jesus is talking about a variety of gifts to build, to grow, and to mature his church, mainly spiritual gifts. Now, the spiritual gifts are mentioned in, in four different places in the New Testament, mentioned here, mentioned in um, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and 1 Peter chapter 4, and, and we'll go through those. We went through 1 Peter 4 when we went through 1 Peter. We have yet to go through Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. I think we might, as I'm thinking through this and as I was studying, it's like, man, we probably need to have a Sunday seminar on spiritual gifts. How has God wired you? How has he shaped you? What gifts has he given to you? How do you use them? So we're going to go more into depth into our spiritual gifts this next coming year. But I just want to give you a general overflow that, that, that Jesus gives us spiritual gifts, again, for the building up of the body. And there's a number of gifts. I don't know. Some people say there's 15. Some people say there's 20 plus. Some say there's 19. They're not exhaustive gifts. They're not very specific gifts. They're kind of gifts that are in categories and buckets that we kind of look at and use. They can mean a variety of different things. But this is the point, that Jesus is the giver 
of gifts to all his people. So everyone in here who names the name of Christ has been given a gift. I love how one puts it. He said, spiritual gifts are like fingerprints. We all have them, but they are unique and distinct to each person. And they are put on display in a variety of different ways. Isn't that good? Because we all have fingerprints, but not one of our fingerprints is the same. And even in our spiritual giftings, we might have the same gift of teaching. We might have the same gift of encouragement or discernment or whatever it may be. But how we implement that because of our background, because of our personality is going to be different. But we all have them. And praise the Lord, right? I mean, we just think about, you know, the band and the team that was up here singing like I'm terrible at singing. Like if I picked up Elise's violin, it'd be like nails on the chalk bar. And who wants to hear that? Right. But when she plays it, whew, it moves your soul, man. It moves your soul to worship, right? Some of you have the gift of encouragement, and, 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 you, and you share that differently. You, you send timely text messages to people. Some of you are still kind of old school where you write notes to people, which is awesome. And even more old school, you like, you like put hearts over the dotted eyes, right? Now, no dudes do that in, in here at the crossing because that would be church discipline if you guys did that, right? But you guys know what I'm saying. We all have gifts. They're different and they're, they're called to bless the body, to build us up. Why? I love this one said. Because there's not one expression of God that will adequately display his glory. That's why we need a variety of gifts. Seen in a variety of ways is because there is not one expression of God through us that will adequately display his glory. Well, Paul here specifically in, in four highlights four leadership gifts or roles in the church. This is within the church. He, he gives us these in verse 11, these four specific leadership roles. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. You could also put pastors there and teachers. And I believe that shepherd and teachers are one, one position. It's not two separate. It's not shepherds and teachers. They're one. Uh, the reason why is because there's no definite article in the original language between those two. There's only the shepherds and teachers where everyone else has the, the definite article. Anyway, technical detail. So what, what is an apostle? Just quickly, what is an apostle? Well, some in a technical sense says the apostles doesn't exist anymore. It was exclusively... Uh, for the 12. Uh, to be an apostle, you had to be a, a, uh, one who saw Jesus, who was taught by Jesus, and saw his resurrection personally. And so a lot of people say like, well, there was only 12 that did that. You had the 11, Judas, and then they had Matthias in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2, I believe, that took his place, and the apostle Paul. Uh, apostle means sent out one. And so in a technical sense, that role of capital A apostle does not exist anymore in the church. It's, it's, it's done. But in a general sense, in a lower A sense, apostles who are sent out would be like church planners or, or missionaries. That could happen. And then you have prophets. What is a prophet? Well, again, this is one that is, in a technical sense, isn't around anymore. Prophets were one like an Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel. <clears throat> and, and, and they had, sometimes they had the ability to, to look into the future and and, and um, give a, a prophecy, a future prophecy. 
But mostly what happened, these prophets, is they would, the Lord would say, thus says the Lord, and would download the word of God through the spirit of God in them, and they would proclaim that word to the people and then write it down. Again, with the close of canon, the 66 books, that role in that technical sense of prophet doesn't exist anymore today. But in a lowercase sense, in a lower piece sense, uh, the prophets are those that have a, a gift to proclaim the word of God. We would say yes. And then you have evangelists, those who have the ability to, to take the gospel to anyone in need. I mean, you think of guys like Billy Graham, right? They got like one suit and three messages. They just travel the world preaching the gospel, right? People get saved. There's guys with, with gifts like that. But mostly we have shepherds, pastors, and teachers. Uh, these are the ones who are called to lead the local church, the local ministry. Uh, these are the ones that are called to walk alongside you. We, we use pastor and elder synonymously. Those two aren't the same. They're, they're, they're the same. They're not separate. Pastor, elder, they're interchangeable. These are, again, the guys that that teach you, that counsel you, that protect you from heresy, that encourage you, that give you wisdom. So these are the spiritual leadership gifts given to men by Jesus to be set apart to lead his church. And, and here at the crossing, that would be myself, Daniel, Rich, and Joey right now. And it's our desire to, to joyfully, humbly, gently, patiently lead and love you guys. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to have hiccups. We're not Jesus. But that's our desire. And our also desire is to now bring Beck on. To bring Beck on. To, to help our staff. Because as we continue to grow, I personally have a conviction. It's not thus says the Lord, but that we, between 50 and 75 people, that there's a pastor to oversee, to shepherd, to walk through life between 50 and 75 if we're a church that's a little bit over 300, if we count all of our noses, that means we're, we need another guy. And not only to minister, to, but it's also going to help free us all up to walk in our specific giftings in these leadership roles. And it's going to add a gift mix to us that we need and we might be lacking a little bit. And so, look at verse 12. These roles in the leadership of the church are for a specific reason. We have a specific task that Jesus gives us in verse 12 says, we are to equip the saints. Who are the saints? That's you. For the work of the ministry. In general sense, that's the, it's outside the church a little bit, I think. To the work outside the ministry, to, 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 to share the gospel with those that do not know Jesus where you live, work, and play. To, to be a blessing to the city. To, to, to serve the homeless, to, to serve the widows and the orphans. So for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body, I think that might be inside the church. Your gifts aren't only supposed to serve those outside the church, but those in particular inside the church. In fact, Paul says that we first do good to the household of faith. That you use your gifts first to build up the body. But this is what's so crucial about what Jesus is saying here in verse 12. Our calling as pastors in these leadership roles of the Crossing Church, get this, is to equip and minister to you. We are also to minister alongside you or with you 
We also, as, we, we also go out and do the ministry alongside you or with you, but we're not to minister for you. We're to equip you, we're to minister alongside you, but we're not to minister for you. God has called each and every one of his sons and daughters in the faith to be ministers, to do the work of the ministry inside the church and outside the church. Jesus says everyone who's a Christian has been given a gift or two or three to fulfill the role and responsibility and taking the good news of the gospel inside the church and outside the church. And isn't that awesome? That, that you and I are a part of something way bigger than ourselves. Way bigger than the crossing. We're built on men, women, and children over thousands of years that have gone before us and then, Lord willing, depending on when he comes back, People are going to be standing on our shoulders. And unity comes through variety. It comes through the diversity of our gifts. Listen, FYI, in case you don't know, you probably do know this, but just in case, your pastors are insufficient to minister and build Christ's church alone. We ain't got the juice. But together, all of us, we can move some mountains. The Lord will use us as we're unified in the gifts that He has given us. A couple weeks ago, I talked about those who, are, who love the fellowship of the crossing. They come because you guys are kind, you're, not <coughs> you're nice, you're joyful, you're awesome to be around. But you haven't received God the Father of the cross, you haven't repented and trusted in Christ. And again, if that's you today, if you're, if you're coming to the cross and you, again, you love the people, we're glad you're here. We love you as well. But you need to fully embrace and, and bow your knee in repentance and faith to follow Christ. Do that today. But today, the flip side is true. There might be some people in here that love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might but they lack the fellowship of a local church. And you can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't love His church. You know why? That's a different balancing scale. Because Christ in Revelation says He is in the midst of His church. Jesus loves His church. He's in the midst of His church. So if you say that you love Christ, then you'll love His church. You'll be a part of His church. And so some of you need to take that next step of fellowship with his church. And I would love to help you in that, taking that next step. So please come see me after the gathering. Well, quickly, <clears throat> well, I'll just highlight the, the third principle. A healthy church is marked by maturity, verses 13 through 16. Here's something we'll think about. Let me just sum this up. Uh, Jesus wants his church to attain unity to mature into the full stature of Christ, verse 13. He wants us to grow and no longer be children. In other words, he wants us to take off the bib and put on the towel of serving. Now there's time, there's growth. Some of you, 
you know, have just come to faith and we all start out as babies and we continue to grow. But some of you say, might be around for 20 years and said, I've been a believer for 20 years, but you still got your bib on. Time to take the bib off and put the towel on. Roll up our sleeves and start serving one another. Amen? In verse 14, he wants us to be equipped. He wants us to work properly together and grow up in love. Verse 15. Again, this is Jesus' priority is to have a healthy, mature church that bears his name. This is Jesus' priority. And the question for us this morning is, it, is it your priority? Is it my priority? Are we engaging in the work of the ministry? Are we building up the body of Christ? Are we using the gifts that God has given us? I think so. But are we doing it perfectly? No. So let's spur one another on in love and good deeds. Let's encourage one another. Let's rally one another. Let's blow wind into one another's sails. Let's roll up our sleeves together and let us walk in our calling. Let's make sure our conduct corresponds to our calling and let us stand on the confession of the triune God. There is one Lord, one faith, and one hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, Lord, there's so much here that we, we, we could have covered, but we haven't covered just for time. But that's the, that's the beauty. As long as we're here on earth, we got time to dive into your word. And so, Lord, I just pray that each and every individual in here did a spiritual health check to see where they are with regards to their calling. For those that, that have not bowed the knee in repentance and faith to you, Lord, I pray that today they would repent of their sin. They would look to your life, your death, your resurrection. They would look to you as their Savior and that you would save them. For those of us that have, Lord, I pray that our calling would be seen in our conduct and we would stand firm on our confession. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.